This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I used to go to a water Zumba class. It was like me and a bunch of 80-year-olds, and it was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I'm dying to take Jazzercise. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's how all the hot girls were hot in like the 80s. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. <laughs> Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So how do you plan on keeping me up at night? (laughs) So this is part two of our Scientology saga. And for this part, I really wanted to focus on David Miscavige. Narcissist extraordinaire, possible sociopath, definitely sadistic and the current head of Scientology. He sounds like a gem. (laughs) He is quite the gem. The way the church is run under his leadership is so insane and I just find him fascinating. So this is our last episode on Scientology for now, but I'm going to leave it open to say I might circle back later because I love talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely will. Oh, yeah. So I got my information from a variety of sources for this episode, including Going Clear, both the book by Lawrence Wright and the documentary based on the book by Alex Gibney, and the podcast uh, Surviving Scientology with Jeffrey Augustine. Also, once again, anything Leah Remini's ever been in, I love her. So if you have not listened to Scientology Part 1, you might want to do that now before we get into Part 2 because we discussed some of the background of it that 
you might need to know for these stories. And because we're funny. We're hilarious. My friend's friend's husband just (laughs) told his wife, who then told my friend, that we're hilarious. (laughs) Stop it, mom. You're embarrassing us. I honestly just find Miscavige Scientology so much more interesting than L. Ron Hubbard, who was the creator, probably because I find psychopaths so fascinating and Hubbard with all his faults. I just don't think he really was one. Narcissist, yes, but psychopath, I'm not sure. Miscavige is a guy that would have been like a serial killer or something if he didn't find his way to the head of this organization. So thank goodness for Scientology then, I guess. Well, yeah, there's a way to look at it. David Miscavige became the head of Scientology in 1987, the year after Hubbard's death. So how old would you assume he was to have time to like rise through the ranks and become the head of this large organization? Just like ballpark figure. Like how old do you think he would have been? Well, more importantly, I would like to say that I was zero years old in 1987 because that was the year I was born and that's most important. God, I sound like a narcissist. I I was one years old. All right, Hubbard. Okay, but I would say, I would at least want you to be like 50 plus. That's what I was thinking. Like, I was thinking like at least 40s, but he was 27. Oh my word. I know, 27. I just, I remember looking at a picture of him, like a recent picture, and I was like, God, he looks pretty young for someone who's been leading the church for over 30 years. So I looked it up and I realized he was born in 1960. And I was really surprised. I could not believe someone that young just became the head of this organization. And I wanted to know how, how he did that. That's shocking. I mean, I don't want to sound like a degenerate or anything, but I didn't even have my first apartment until I was over <laughs> 27. Exactly. Because I assumed that if you become the head of an organization, that means that you earned that spot, right? Like you rose through the ranks, you climbed the ladder, and you got into that position. So I started looking into how David Miscavige got it, and that is not what happened. This is the first story that I want to tell you. Fun fact, this was the very first script I ever wrote for this podcast. <laughs> and this oh, is these the- are scripted? That's interesting. <laughs> I must not have gotten that in my inbox. That's weird. <laughs> no, I just, nice. I just off the top of my I just off the top of my head. Yeah. But not this one. This one I'm reading. So that brings us to the first story I want to tell you is how David Miscavige became the leader of Scientology. And this story comes courtesy of Lawrence Wright's book, Going Clear, which I highly recommend. So David Miscavige was 11 when he and his family joined Scientology. There are a lot of stories around this time of him being like weirdly violent and showing sociopathic tendencies, but he started to stand out in Scientology almost right away. And when he was 12, he became the youngest auditor ever. Do you remember what an auditor is? Yes. Basically a Scientologist that's a therapist. I could not imagine telling my deepest, darkest secrets to a 12 year old. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Could you imagine? Uh, me either. Like you, you like $800 an hour auditing, you sit down and you're across the table from a 12 year old. I um Like that's his first job. <laughs> it's his first job. At 16, mm-hmm. he dropped out of high school and joined the Sea Org signing that billionaire contract. And he rose through the ranks pretty quickly, first as the head cinematographer, because Scientology has a whole movie studio called Golden Era Productions. And then he became Hubbard's action chief when he was still a teenager. What are all these made up things? An action chief? (laughs) 
So this job let him use some of those sociopathic tendencies to make sure all of Hubbard's directives were carried out to his satisfaction. In 1980, Hubbard had like 48 lawsuits and three subpoenas coming at him. So he disappeared one day in a white Dodge van fitted with curtains and a daybed, which honestly sounds like the van my dad lived in for a few months. Oh, well, I was about to say something. (laughs) No offense, Mr. Williams, but... Oh, he's aware. (laughs) This creeper van. Check yourself. Hubbard's two closest aides were Pat and Annie Broker. So while Hubbard was in hiding, Pat's job was to run all his errands for him, making sure his location remained a secret. Meanwhile, Miscavige proved himself very useful by figuring out how to keep paying Hubbard a million dollars a week while still keeping him hidden. A million dollars a week? A million dollars a week. I'm about to sign up for Scientology. No, again, please don't send me anything in the mail. That is $52 million a year for just sitting in some little apartment. With Hubbard on the run, Miscavige decided he was now the official conduit to him, and he got the title Special Project Ops, where he reported directly to Pat Broker. He was only 23, and he and the brokers were basically the gatekeepers to Hubbard. They decided what information Hubbard got, and they decided what information about Hubbard Scientologists got, most of which were all lies, because really at this point, Hubbard was deteriorating pretty badly, and you know Scientology is supposed to cure you of all your ailments, and remember they believe they have godlike abilities when they get up the bridge, so Hubbard of all people should have this full control over all these things. He shouldn't be getting sick, but he was not well off. So he went into hiding because he was sick or just because he was getting harassed and like the lawsuits? He had 48 lawsuits and three subpoenas coming at him from like the IRS. Right. But also like for someone who thought of fair game and literally harassing and like, (laughs) you know, suing the crap Mm -hmm. out of people. That's Mm -hmm. pretty ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why he does it because he realized like (laughs) how annoying it is. (laughs) Karma. Uh, Yeah, I I told you in the last episode how he had originally started the Sea Org. It was on a boat, and the IRS was coming after him for all the back taxes that he owed, and so they just, like, took off on a boat. So, And they did that for years and years. Like, they would just go into ports in all these countries and get kicked out of the countries and go to the next port and just kept evading, you know, the IRS. And so now... In 1980, they're like really coming after him. And so he runs and hides. So Pat Broker and David Miscavige team up and they start booting out all the top executives in Scientology, just anyone that could be seen as a threat to their power. And they got real secret about it. Like they would communicate in code on pagers that would set up secret payphone meetings where they would talk for hours. It was like an affair. Pagers. I, I have PTSD from high school when my mom wouldn't give me a cell phone and she used to send me the 911 page on my pager and I saw to find a phone to call her. Oh, and and you like worried the whole time, like while you're looking for a payphone. Oh. Uh, David Miscavige was at Scientology headquarters while the brokers were living next door to Hubbard in his super secret hiding spot, which was actually an apartment in California. <laughs> So people above Miscavige start noticing he's acting super secret and weird and doing all these psycho things like beating people up, which he denies, of course. They start calling for him to be security checked or sec checked, which is what Scientologists do when they think someone's been bad. It's basically intense interrogation in the form of auditing. 
And Miscavige refused to be sex checked. And I don't think he's been audited since, which is crazy for a Scientologist for 30 years to not have participated in any auditing at all. Because he's, I don't like a regular schedule for audit. They go like every day. They have to get auditing about every day. That's crazy. I know. And now he's like just in Graham filthy, probably. Probably. Exactly. They're all back. So this woman, Gail Irwin, who was the head of the Commodore's Messengers, which is like a really big deal. It was the top organization within Scientology under Hubbard's leadership. They were his personal messengers. So she thinks Miscavige has become psychotic and she wants to get in touch with the brokers themselves because Miscavige has been keeping them all to himself. So she sets up a meeting outside a payphone at a Denny's one night. (laughs) She's waiting at this payphone in the dead of the night, waiting for this call to come through when this black van just comes barreling towards her out of nowhere. It skids to a halt right in front of her and six men just come rushing out of the van, including Miscavige. And he goes to town on this payphone with a tire iron and eventually just rips it like straight out of the machine and they grab Gail and throw her in the van. That seems very odd, but. Yeah. And, and I just picture it as so comical because David Miscavige, he's real little, he's five, three, like he's shorter than me, but he's super built. Like he's really muscular on top. So what I've been told, I've never seen little bulldog walking around exactly people exactly so i just picture him like jumping up on this payphone you know like trying to pull it off the wall yeah also once you have like captured gail i mean the what the payphone <laughs> yes like, like why yes so just get gail why do you have to go <laughs> attack the payphone but i think that just shows his violence like he's a very violent person i i mentioned that people were concerned because he was doing all these things like beating people up, he still does that. There are so many people with stories of being physically abused by this, you know, little guy. Little bulldog. Little bulldog. He, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I can picture it. And with that, with the kidnapping of Gail, the coup was done. Miscavige and Broker were now completely in control of Scientology. There was no one else to call them on their nonsense. Miscavige had Gail Irwin declared a suppressive person, which in Scientology means somebody who's a danger to Scientology. And no one within Scientology is allowed to communicate with them or they will be declared. So he has Gail declared a suppressive person and that's it. She's gone. She's, Gail's gone. Poor Gail. Well, I mean, actually, you know, it probably was doing Gail a favor, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So meanwhile, Hubbard is living in this tiny apartment in California, and he is deteriorating rapidly. He's becoming paranoid and frail. And shortly before his death, he decides to pass on the Scientology torch to Pat and Annie Broker. He came out with an order that promoted them to the highest rank in Scientology, and it was pretty clear that's who he had in mind to take over. Plot twist, though. That's not what happens. No, it's not. So Hubbard dies of a stroke in 1986, and now they have to decide how to tell the public. They can't just say he died because he's supposed to be above death. He's supposed to have godlike abilities. Mm-hmm. So they arrange this event to announce his death. And you can watch this on YouTube, by the way. <gasps> 
and oh, I've watched it so many times. <laughs> and the scavenge comes out on stage, and like I said, he's this really small guy, like five three, super muscular, walks out on stage and full military looking regalia because that's how Scientology operates. And he walks out to this crowd, most of whom had never seen him before in their life, unless they were in the Sea Org. Um, pu- public Scientologists had no idea who he was. And this is what he says about Hubbard. He has now moved on to his next level of OT research. This level is beyond anything any of us ever imagined. This level is in fact done in an exterior state, meaning that it is done completely exterior from the body. At this level of OT, the body is nothing more than an impediment, an encumbrance to any further gains as an OT. Thus, at 2,000 hours, Friday, the 24th of January, AD 36, L. Ron Hubbard discarded the body he had used in this lifetime for 74 years, 10 months, and 11 days. I'm sorry. Like, here's what happened. Everyone panicked. They all got together, and they're like, how do we explain this? (laughs) No, that's exactly what happened. They had to get together and be like, okay, all right, Hubbard died. Uh... What, what, what are we, we going to tell people? Uh, we can't tell him. Any, oh, he dropped. He intentionally dropped his body because he needed to do more research for Scientology. And he can't do that research with his body because it's just getting in the way of the research he has to do. He literally <laughs> stood in front of this crowd and said that he was exterior from the body. <laughs> Sounds like the undercover boss gone wrong oh my god so now there's only one person in miscavige's way the brokers the brokers that's broke well pat broker really still in his way and to get rid of him miscavige needed someone just as ruthless as him enter mark marty rathbun who could honestly be a whole episode himself and I didn't go into this in my notes, but I just feel like I need to give a little background on Marty Rathbun. So Marty Rathbun was like David Miscavige's number two when they were all in the church. And Marty left the church. He was involved in Going Clear, the documentary. When he left the church, he was fair gamed like crazy. Him and his wife, who was never even in Scientology, they were stalked and surveilled secretly. And it was just really awful. But surveilled was a word. Oh, well, it is. You're welcome. But he ended up suing Scientology and they in Texas because he was living in Texas. And they actually had the lawyer that represented Marty on Leah Remini and Mike Rinder's Fair Game podcast. And he was talking about how they were going to win. And actually, they were going to order Miscavige to come and testify under oath. And so Scientology started doing anything they could to keep from having to send David Miscavige out to testify and be under oath. They did not want that to ever happen. And nobody knows what happened, but everybody knows what happened because soon after, Marty dropped the lawsuit and went back to the church. And is now speaking on his blog about how awful Mike Rinder is. Like, just totally, he had a blog for a long time uh, against Scientology about all these terrible, terrible stories. And now he's back in the church blogging away on Scientology's behalf. And oh my goodness, that is 
really embarrassing for him, but um, I'm here for that journey. I want to read about it. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. They threatened Um, his life, obviously. I think money. I think they gave him money and it would make all of the fair gaming go away. He was tired of that. And Marty was a believer in Scientology. He just didn't like David Miscavige. I think they, uh, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So back to David Miscavige trying to take over Scientology. Broker's in charge, and Miscavige is planning his takeover with Marty Rathbun right at his side. He, at the time, just as ruthless as David Miscavige. The brokers had insurance, though, to make sure that they stayed on top. They were the only ones who knew the whereabouts of the secret levels. Remember, we talked about the bridge to total freedom in part one and how the highest level you can reach in Scientology right now is OT8. Well, the brokers knew where the higher levels were because Hubbard had written them before his death and only the brokers knew where they were. So Miscavige had Rathbun hire a team of private investigators to go after the brokers. They gained the brokers' trust, gave them a phone, and Rathbun started recording all their calls, trying to find these missing levels. And then a couple of events happened. First, Miscavige went to the ranch where the brokers were now living to try and talk them into giving him the files that they were hiding there, while Rathbun and a squad of goons surrounded the ranch, preparing to storm in and take everything if the brokers said no. (laughs) Squad of goons. Broker eventually let Miscavige have the filing cabinets after many threats were made, but nothing of importance was in them. So then Miscavige decides to go after Annie. He interrogated her, and finally she told him about a storage unit Pat kept. They searched it and found nothing. Eventually, David Miscavige decided it had all been made up. There were no secret higher levels, which was a real bummer because they'd very publicly announced the existence of these levels. So he just goes ahead and cancels Hubbard's final order that gave power to the brokers saying the brokers must have made up that order too. So he just decides he has the authority to do that. Yeah, how does one do that? (sighs) Well, Pat Broker ends up fleeing the country, and Miscavige had him tailed by PIs for the next 24 years to make sure he never came back. What a great use of funds, I'm sure. Tax-free funds. Yes, tax-free funds Mm -hmm, for those. PIs for 25. But what a job, right? I mean, I think he went to Europe and stuff. Like, imagine, like, you're paid on probably an exorbitant PI rate a day to, like, watch this guy walk through Paris. (laughs) No, you can't. You can't convince me anything's better than an $800 an hour auditor. That's what I'm trying to do at 12 years old. You don't get that money. That all goes to Scientology. You don't get that money. Watch me. They will sue you, Mogab. They are not above it. Been there, done that. <laughs> and that's how in 1988, at about 27 years old, he was 27 after getting rid of anyone who could be a threat to him, Miscavige declared himself the leader, or as he supposedly likes to call himself, the Pope of Scientology. Again, you can't be mixing other religions into your made up <laughs> one. It's killing me. Okay, is that not the most insane story of how he just, like, schemed? Yeah, he was, like, appointing himself <laughs> to all kinds of things. <laughs> he just decided he was going to do it. So that story was in Going Clear, so he would like to read it. 
So we talked in part one about how Miscavige was responsible for getting Scientology IRS tax exempt status by basically fair gaming the IRS. And once that happened, he had complete control over the church. I mean, he's the one that was able to get them tax exempt status and saved the future of Scientology. Even Hubbard couldn't do that. So people really got behind him at that point. And once he got complete control, Miscavige went absolutely nuts. This story that I wanted to tell you, because I was trying to decide when I was writing this, like, which Scientology stories were my favorite? Like, which ones did I want to tell that I loved hearing, right? Your favorite? Okay. My my favorites. So this is my favorite story (laughs) that I've ever heard. And it's a story that I've heard in several places from several different people that were all there, including in the Going Clear documentary. I believe some people talked about it on Leah Remini's show. This is the story of the most extreme, sadistic game of musical chairs that has ever been played. Oh, this sounds very exciting. (laughs) I wanted to tell this story because I think it really shows what Miscavige is capable of. And it also shows just how brainwashed Scientologists are, especially Scientologists in the Sea Org. Okay, so on to the story of the night David Miscavige forced a bunch of Scientology executives to play a game of musical chairs for their lives. Oh, wait, musical chairs is for real? I thought that was like some dumb code name they had for something. No, no, no. This is like actually they actually game. played musical chairs. Oh, shit, I'm here for this. Okay. <laughs> I know. Okay. So the first thing to know is that musical chairs was a phrase common in Scientology to refer to moving people around to different orgs all the time. To See, kind I of- told you. I told you. <laughs> so they would move people around all the time to give everyone like a sense of instability. You could just be moved at any time. And it was a way for Miscavige to maintain his power. The second thing you need to know before we talk about the actual game of musical chairs that they played <laughs> is about a place called The Hole. Ooh, creepy. (laughs) The hole is two double-wide trailers just shoved together on the grounds of the gold base in Hemet, California, which is the international headquarters of Scientology. The hole became like a de facto prison for any executives that fell out of favor with David Miscavige. He would just have them sent to the hole. Your girl loves a good double-wide trailer, but that place sounds miserable. (laughs) So the Tampa Bay Times described it in a January 2013 article as a place of confinement and humiliation where Scientology's management culture, always demanding, grew extreme. Inside, a who's who of Scientology leadership went at each other with brutal tongue lashings and even hands and fists. They intimidated each other into crawling on their knees and standing in trash cans and confessing to things they hadn't done. They lived in degrading conditions, eating and sleeping in cramped spaces designed for office use. And then the Tampa Bay Times was fair gamed. The hell and back. (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. They were. (laughs) Uh, You're catching on, Mogab. You're learning. (laughs) Watch out. So at times, there were reportedly up to 100 people living in these conditions at the same time. What? Some were held for years, and these were horrific conditions where they were eating slop and sleeping on the floor next to the roaches. It was not a fun place to be. Yeah. Which makes the following events all the more strange. 
So David Miscavige comes in and he starts threatening to what they call offload people, which basically means he's going to drop them off at a bus station in Nevada or wherever and just say, all right, you're on your own now. Hazing 101. Got it. (laughs) So he comes into the hole one night around midnight and he says they're going to play a game, a game with one winner and where all the losers are going to be offloaded. Potentially 99 losers, right? And a bitch ain't one. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I was going for, but but I like it. (laughs) Yes, potentially 99 losers. I'm not exactly sure how many people were playing, but it was a lot. (laughs) All right. Can't believe you just quoted Jay-Z on the podcast. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. So he says they're going to play a game, a game with one winner and all the losers will be offloaded. And that game is to be musical chairs. 
So he gets people to set up all these chairs in this big circle and he puts on Bohemian Rhapsody because he says nothing really matters to any of them anymore. Stop. <laughs> like, the He's more, on drugs. The more, He's on drugs, right? Probably. And the more I think about this story, the more I realize what a, what a freaking drama queen he is. Like he just needed attention or something this night and he wasn't yeah, getting what enough. A creep. What, what a, a total creep. Oh, David Miscavige, king of the creeps. And okay, remember, these are all grown adults in the hole. These people are probably anywhere between 30 years old and 70 years old. And these are people that are so brainwashed, so afraid of David Miscavige that they are actively fighting to stay in the hole. Yeah, like they're fighting for a chair in this true hellhole that they're in. Exactly. So that they don't have to leave. Yes, exactly. So the music starts playing and people... Full-grown adults. Did I say that? Full-grown adults? Yeah. (laughs) Start going bananas. They start getting into physical fights, ripping clothes, whatever they have to do to make sure that they get a chair. One by one, people start losing, and Miscavige has a secretary in the office printing off bus tickets for them, telling them, oh, you're going to be going to the Edmonton org. It's negative 22 there in the winter. And the whole has an office? That's what I'm... Well, the hole is actually office space. Uh. Like it was designed for office use. He just decided that's where he was going to send the people he didn't like. So this one guy starts crying and Miscavige yells at him. And the guy tells him that his wife is there and he doesn't want to leave her. And Miscavige says, well, none of you cared about me. So I'm not going to care about any of you. And I'll bet he sounded less whiny, but I mean... Probably not. It sounds like a full-on meltdown. <laughs> what is he fit? To me, it just feels like this guy is getting so much pleasure out of watching these grown adults fight tooth and nail to stay in the hole. To the sound of Bohemian Rhapsody also. Yeah. And okay, this game lasts hours, possibly until about four in the morning. And I'm like, was he playing Bohemian Rhapsody the whole time? On I mean, repeat. I know that's Ugh. a long song, but that's still gonna be it gotta be like 75 times. Oh my god. I'll bet none of them can listen to that song ever again. I mean look, I love Bohemian Rhapsody, okay, but I don't want to listen to it on repeat for four <laughs> hours. I don't want to listen to anything on repeat repeat for four hours. I do remember real quick side note when I worked at the waffle when we would leave first shift, we would like load the jukebox with quarters and play proud to be an American <laughs> the entire second shift and leave them, which is so terrible. That's like what I'm equating that to. And I just want to say, I'm really sorry about that. Do you know what I'm equating it to? I'm equating it to like, oh, it must've been what? 1999 when Barbie girl was like the big song and this yeah. radio station, I think it was 104. They got so tired of people requesting that song that they played it for like an entire afternoon. On repeat. <laughs> I would have loved that. So, I know. So it's just, I'm a Barbie girl over and over. I think we That's jammed. Nice. I think me and my friends like jammed out for, I mean, it got old like after the a while. first 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm just picturing two like rusty chairs and like a shitty boombox. Okay, like it's funny with the you say rusty chairs. Like, yeah, whatever. yes. 
two guys start fighting over a chair and it's is one of those metal chairs that you would set up at like an auditorium or something they start fighting over it and literally rip it apart like ripped the top right off of the metal chair uh so now i have weapons right oh my god and at the end, there was one winner. And I watched Marty Rathbun telling the story, like the Marty Rathbun that was against Scientology before he went back. And he says he's pretty sure it was one of those Kool-Aid drinkers, which I find very ironic now. And he said if Miscavige ever went full Jim Jones, she'd be right there next to him. Also ironic, given the state of Marty Rathbun's membership of Scientology. Then the next morning, while all these people think they're going to be getting shipped off and they're all upset about it, like they want to stay in the hole, they're terrified of being offloaded. David Miscavige comes in the next morning and just says, never mind, none of you are going to be offloaded. You can thank me later. What a total lunatic. <laughs> oh my what about God. all the bus tickets? Lunatic. What a great word. That's one I don't have in here. Lunatic. Yeah. That's why you the- keep me around. Wasted bus tickets. I guess he just didn't, hadn't spent enough money that day. So he just decided to buy a bunch of bus tickets. He just wanted to see what they would do. Like he just wanted to be cruel, you know? Okay. So what do you think about that story? Um, I think that I've never been more creeped out, but also wishing that I could have been a fly on the wall, maybe. Mm. Maybe not for the whole thing. Four hours is a long time, but like... Four hours is a little much, but like a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end, you know, maybe a little bit here in the middle, just popping in and out, you know, see how it's going. Also, don't put it past me, though, to like bust out musical chairs at a birthday party after we've had a few glasses of wine, because I haven't played that game in a long time, and that sounds... Well, now I have it in my head, this game, and so I'm pretty sure I would be like beating up grandma just to like get (laughs) there. I don't think I could be trusted anymore. Musical chairs. I'm really surprised by this story. Does the hole still exist? Yes. And in fact, uh, Hebert Gench, who is the former president of Scientology, I'm pretty sure he's been in the hole for like 20 years. How's the FBI not like raided the hole? Yeah. (laughs) FBI. (laughs) Hello, FBI. Would you like to explain yourselves? And actually, there are so many stories because, okay, this is what they do. We'll get into the gold base, but the gold base is this super secret base. It's where the hole is. It's in Hemet, California. In the de- it's actually outside of Hemet in the desert. So you know how streets are public property. So if, if you're like protesting, you're allowed to protest on the street. You know, you just can't protest on somebody's right. lawn, but you can go to the sidewalk. Well, Scientology managed to like buy the road. And so nobody is allowed to park anywhere along it. It is a 700-acre compound surrounded by razor-sharp fences that have spikes pointing in both directions at the top of the fence all the way around it. There are motion sensors along the perimeter and a camouflaged sniper bunker hidden in the hillside above. And they say they have all this security to keep people out, but it sure does a good job of keeping people in. Yeah, that seems like a whole lot of security and accoutrements for a double wide. 
Right. So, well, no, it's not just the double. That's that's at the gold base, but the gold base is a huge 700 acre compound. It's got like, right. it's got, it's where their golden era production studio is. I'm pretty sure it's where their religious technology center is. Like it's their international headquarters. So it's, it's a big deal. I know that this podcast is PG 13, but what kind of movies do we think that they're filming there? Uh, I know exactly what kind of movies are filming there. They're filming, <laughs> um, like Scientology propaganda movies. They filmed, they made a movie version of one of Hubbard's books that he had written, one of his science fiction books that he'd written. Actually, there was this Scientologist who worked there. There were actors that would come to the base every day and then leave. And she was so desperate to get out of there that she climbed into one of their guys' trunk and just was like, I guess I'm getting out wherever this guy lets me out, you know, and that's how she got out. But she doesn't sound too, I mean, that doesn't seem that scary, like comparatively, like, yeah, I would crawl in a trunk too and just like get out at the next circle K, like. I know, but it's like, where do you go from there? You call somebody on a payphone. Call who? Like you don't even, you've been in a cult, you know, like who do you even know? Your family's probably all in there. You call Leah, you call Leah Remini. That's who you call. If you are in the Sea Org and you're listening to this right now, first of all, don't get caught. Do not get caught. Second of all, call Leah. I gave out her information last time. The Aftermath Foundation. Okay, anyways, this story, this last story, probably one of my favorite stories that I've ever heard. This story is the escape of Claire Headley from the gold base in Hemet, California. And Claire told this story on the aftermath with Leah Remini, but she told it so much better on the podcast Surviving Scientology with Jeffrey Augustine. That was the first place I'd ever heard it probably because she just had more time to tell it. And I highly recommend listening to her tell it. I believe it's episode 24 of that podcast. But in lieu of that, I'm going to tell it to you <laughs> because I think it, it just highlights how much Sea Org members are trapped in Scientology, especially those at the gold base, but really any base. Uh, like I said, this is the same base where the hole is located and people can't leave even if they want to. So they have to go through elaborate schemes to escape, which Scientologists call blowing. And this actually became such a problem, so many people blowing, that Miscavige requested reports every single morning of who had blown the day before. I'm not so- mature enough for this. So <laughs> I need you to hurry up through this. Oh, yeah. So that was the first thing he read every morning. They even had, no, I can't read it. They even had blow drills. <laughs> Keep going. Just power through. Where they'd practice what they'd do if someone blew. (laughs) Keep going. All right. So Claire Headley was a Sea Org member, and she'd been in Scientology most of her life. She'd been in the cadet org before the Sea Org, which is basically where Sea Org members send their children. So they separate the children from the parents. Mm -hmm. Are people born into Scientology? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Like their parents are Scientologists, and then they... You know, yeah. Like it's the only so reason people weird. are joining right now. <laughs> you would have no young members if people weren't born into it. Nobody's joining Scientology. God, anymore. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so the Sea Org members send their children to the Cadet Org. So they separate them. They don't raise their children. They're raised by Scientology in the Cadet Org, which is rife with child abuse and child labor. And if you are interested in the Cadet Org, read Jenna Miscavige Hill, who is. Uh, David Miscavige's niece, she wrote a memoir and she writes all about growing up in the cadet org 
and then, you know, beyond. And it is horrifying. So I'm assuming he disowned her. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's an SP. She's an SP for sure. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Yeah. So they separate the kids from their parents because Scientologists believe that it is the Sea Org's mission to clear the planet, to, to get rid of any war or mental illness or crime. Scientology is going to be the one to make this planet a utopia. That's what they believe. That's ambitious. Right. And they can't think of that. They can't concentrate on that mission and raise their kids at the same time. And in fact, for a while, Sea Org members were not allowed to have kids at all, or they'd be kicked out of the Sea Org. And, and this led to many stories of forced abortions, including Claire, which is really mm. sad. Really sad. Anyway, at this point in the story, Claire had worked just under Shelly Miscavige, who's David's wife, who has been missing for quite some time, like at least since 2006. No one knows where she is, but I bet my life she's in the hole. Wait, currently they don't know where she's at? Oh, yeah, currently. Yeah, oh. it's been 14 years. That's actually why Leah Remini left the church, because she asked where Shelly was when she went to Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes's wedding. That's how I know it was in 2006. <laughs> she asked where <laughs> Shelly was, and she got in a lot of trouble for asking about Shelly. So. so I would bet my life she's in the hole, or she's on the RPF, which I'll explain what that, think it, what that is later. Some people think she's dead, but I don't think so. I think she's being kept hidden somewhere, but... Anyway, this isn't about her. It's about Claire. <laughs> Dang. Claire worked under Shelley for a long time. So she was one of the top executives in Scientology. And she was married to a man named Mark Headley. Mark Headley's also known in the anti-Scientology community as Mr. Blown for Good because he escaped Scientology, which they call blowing. And he started writing a blog about it under that pseudonym. And he's also since written a book that I haven't read, but it is on my list for sure. So Mark escapes in 2005 and Claire decides she's done too. She wants to get out. But how? Like I said, one thing that makes it hard to leave apart from logistics, like just getting out of the gate, where do you go? Your whole family is probably in Scientology. You have no money because you've been in the Sea Org for decades, making $50 a week, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. But, oh, you still have to buy toilet paper and you still have taxes getting taken out of that check. So you have no money. It's insane. But luckily for Claire, Mark had figured all that out for her. He had a plan. She just had to figure out how to get to him. So she had managed to get in contact with Mark and they agreed on this plan. It was going to be a very simple plan. She was going to make an appointment for the eye doctor. And while she was there, she would have a cab meet her at the Walmart where her appointment was. And Mark would call her on her org phone at 1015 to tell her what to do from there. So she puts in the request for an eye doctor appointment. Anytime you want to leave the base, you have to put in a request. And that request has to be approved by like five different people. You cannot just leave. You are a prisoner. (laughs) Yeah, you can be like, oh, I'm going to go get some ice cream, you know? No, you, five people have to approve that request. And usually how it worked for appointments like this is that several people would all go at the same time. And so they would just drop people off at their different appointments and then they would come back around and scoop everybody up. Claire assumed that's how this would go too. And it would really be really easy from there to get a cab to the bus station. And her whole plan was premised on this idea that she'd have a good one or two hour head start before the van came back around and realized she wasn't there anymore. However, 
So many people had been escaping that Scientology decided, noticed how I stopped saying blowing. It's in my notes, but <laughs> we're calling it escaping at this point in the podcast. That. However, so many people had escaped that Scientology decided it wasn't going to go like that. She was going to have a personal escort, take her to her appointment, go into her appointment and sit with her and then take her straight back. And Claire knew the words they didn't say to make damn sure you don't escape. Right. So Claire had two options. She could go forward with her plan or she could stay. Instantly, it's running through her head how her whole plan is just falling apart. And now she's got to figure out how to ditch this escort but she decides to risk it. I do think it's ironic that they're going to appointments when they're supposed to have these like godlike abilities. Like, why don't you go to the eye doctor? Mm, because she hasn't gone all the way through. She doesn't have mm. complete control. I know. I thought the same thing because actually they don't really do doctors. So I was actually yeah. really surprised that they, but I guess the eye doctor, it's like, you need glasses. So yeah. they'll let you and go, like get your glasses, you know, but I don't think they'll let you, they won't let you go to the doctor for like, you're walking pneumonia. That's how somebody's 25-year-old son died. They just mm -hmm. wouldn't let him go to the doctor and he died. But I guess they'll let you go get glasses. So now she's got to figure out how to ditch this escort, but she decides to risk it because the thought of staying was just incomprehensible. She couldn't do it. The next morning, she got up early and took a risk by calling a cab company on her organization phone. She had no other way to call, but she knew that they monitor those phones. So it was a risk. She calls a cab company, tells them her name is Barbara Smith, and she requests a cab for 1015 to meet her in front of the Walmart in Hemet, California, where her eye doctor appointment was. She asks how much it'll be to the Riverside bus station, and the lady says $90. Well, Claire only has $200 to her name. $200 she has scrimped and saved, and $90 of that is going to go just to getting to the bus stop. That's like two weeks payment. Hey, yeah. but she's got to do it. So the next day she puts on a down jacket and she stuffs her pockets with anything that will fit any few meager possessions and her escort comes to get her and they head off to her appointment. All the while, Claire is just sitting there thinking, how am I going to ditch this lady? When they pull into the lot, Claire sees her cab waiting for her in front of the Walmart and her heart is just thumping in her chest. And Claire calls it luck that her escort had a hard time finding a parking spot at Walmart. Um, but I call it Walmart because have you ever been able to find a parking <laughs> spot when you first get there? You're usually <gasps> driving around for like 20 minutes. Oh my God, you know I park way in the back, but yes, <laughs> I understand. So Claire tells the lady, hey, look, it's 10.15 on the dot. And she says it was. Right then, it was 10.15 on the dot. I don't want to miss my appointment. So why don't you drop me off at the door so I can run in and you can park and I'll meet you inside. And the escort agrees. <gasps> oh, my gosh. I know. So Claire gets out of the car and she doesn't want to run to the cab because she doesn't want to, you know, call attention to herself. And she also knows by doing this that PIs are going to come after her and there's going to be all this drama associated with escaping but she walks as fast as she can and she gets in the cab and the cabbie's like, Barbara Smith? And she's like, yup, go, bus, bus station, go. <laughs> so they start driving to the bus station and her escort buzzes her on her radio to ask where she is. They have a radio? Is this like the org phone? Yeah, on her org phone. I guess it also is like a walkie-talkie. Right, that next tell, old school. <laughs> exactly. And Claire's like, oh, um, I'm in the bathroom. I'll be right out. 
Meanwhile, just praying that Mark is going to call her soon so she can turn her phone off because she knows they can track it. So finally, Mark calls and asks where she is, and she tells him she's in the cab, and he's like, oh my gosh. So he tells her as soon as they hang up to turn her phone off, but to turn it back on at the bus station. And he says to call this specific company in New York and say these exact words. Can you please tell me how to get to your company from Times Square? Well, Claire's been in the Sea Org for like 15 years, and she doesn't know what any of those words mean, but she writes it all down in her notes. And Mark tells her, no matter what, under no circumstances, are you to turn your phone back on after you make that call? They all know they use those phones to track people when they escape. So he says, when you get to the bus station, buy a ticket to Barstow. It'll be $20 to Barstow, so she'll have $90 left. Once she gets to Barstow, he tells her to find a payphone and call him from the payphone, and he'll give directions from there, and that she needs to call him as soon as she gets into Barstow because she's going to have a very limited time. Thank God for payphones. Like, they're nowhere now. How are people... I know. How are people escaping cults now? Right. The cab ride is about 45 minutes, and her phone is turned off. By this time, she knows her escort has figured out that she's run, and she's alerted the base to tell them. So she gets to the Riverside bus station, and she calls the company to ask them for directions from Times Square, and they're like, uh, lady, check Google. And she's like, okay, thank you, and just turns her phone off. (laughs) She didn't say this, but I'm assuming that she made that call so that Scientology would think that she was going to New York to kind of throw them off the track. So at the bus station, she changes out of her Sea Org clothes, which is basically like a Navy uniform, and she goes to buy the ticket to Barstow, which would get her there around 1.30. Like I said, Mark had told her she would have a very small window of time to call him from the payphone once she got there. So she gets on the bus. Everything is going smoothly, but she is panicked the whole time, just knowing people are going to be So have I. Like, <laughs> I'm panicking. Can you please hurry and get to the end? I know. The first bump in the road comes when she gets to Barstow and she sees that none of the payphones accept coins, only calling cards. <laughs> only she doesn't even know what a calling card is because she's been living in a cult for 15 years. <laughs> she's like, what's the slot for? Exactly. Like a credit card? But she knows she has... A very small window of time. She's got to figure something out. She doesn't want to call attention to herself by asking. And in her panic state, she could only think of one thing to do. She had to turn her org phone back on. So she calls Mark. I know. So she calls Mark and he freaks out that she's calling him from the phone. But what's done is done. So he gives her the next set of directions. He gives her a ticket number and he tells her the bus is getting there at 145 and it'll take her to Kansas City. And he will be there in Kansas City when she arrives. So she gets on the bus and the bus is going to have a layover in Vegas where she'd have like a 45 minute layover and be able to change buses. By this time, she hasn't eaten a meal in like days. All she's got is a protein bar in her purse. So she's really looking forward to the prospect of getting to Vegas and just getting a good meal in her before getting on the bus to Kansas City. On the way to Vegas, everything's going as planned and she's starting to feel a little calmer. When the bus arrives, it's dark. She's the last person to leave the bus. She walks off the bus, her eyes on the door to the terminal. Like she's almost in the terminal. She puts her hand on the door and right in front of her is David Miscavige's top henchman, Greg Hair. Oh yeah. my God. Is it because she turned on her phone? 
it must be because it became clear to Claire that he hadn't been looking for her. He knew exactly where she was, knew what bus she was on. He knew everything. And so far. I know. And instantly her heart just sank. She knew she'd been caught. And Greg starts saying, you know, you're not leaving. You're coming back with us. And Claire knew she had to figure out what to do. And she needed to figure it out right then. And Greg starts saying, come on, we'll get you a meal, you know, come with us. And Claire is so hungry at this point. It just took everything in her to walk past him because the only thing she could think to do at this point was to march into the Greyhound bus terminal, throw her purse down on the floor in the middle of the terminal and just sit on it. She just (laughs) sat on it. (laughs) Like a tantrum. Yeah. She knew Scientologists weren't above dragging her out of there, but she hoped with it being such a public place, they wouldn't try. If they did, she was prepared to kick and scream and cause a huge scene. Exactly. She knew she had 30 minutes until her next bus left. And so all she had to do was get through these last 30 minutes and get on her bus if she wanted any hope of ever seeing Mark again. I think the worst part of this story is she doesn't get to eat. Oh, she was like really looking forward to that. And I like really can't handle the thought of people being hungry. That's like a weird thing for me. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. I've had to tell Russell, like, don't tell me when he'll like come home from work. He'll say like, I didn't eat lunch. I'm really hungry. I'm like, I need you to quit doing that. Cause I'll start crying. Like, I <laughs> think about people being hungry. So oh, no. really mailed that home for me. Oh, <laughs> I know because I've been in those situations where you're just like looking, really looking forward to like, like if I have a layover at an airport, you know, I'm like, oh, once I get to the airport, I can get like a sandwich and it'll be nice. I can like relax for a little bit, stretch my legs. And like, no, now she's got to sit on top of her purse in the middle of this Greyhound terminal with Greg saying things like, look around you, Claire. Is this where you want to live? And Claire's like, no, this is a bus station. (laughs) No, but it's definitely not in some hole either. Ugh, yeah. So then Greg calls Mark and tells Mark, like, oh, we've got her. She's not coming anymore. And Claire is just panicking. She knows they're not going to go away. She just has to tough it out until her bus comes to take her to Kansas City. And Greg is just pestering her and pestering her. And he's like, what if David Miscavige was right here in front of you? Like, what would you say to him? And she's just like, well, it's a good thing he's not right here in front of me because I don't think I'd like to say anything nice. So then Greg starts threatening her, telling her her family won't be able to move up the bridge anymore, just telling her anything and everything to get her to come back. But Claire knew this was the right course for her, so she knew she just needed to continue with the plan. Finally, plan on getting on the bus, though? Like, say she makes it the 30 minutes and the bus comes, like, They're not going to, like, manhandle her off the bus? I think it was just too crowded of a place. So she just needed to get to where she could just go directly to the bus because they wouldn't try to grab her in such a public place. Like, she was lucky about that because, you know, we've now heard of at least two kidnapping stories, so they're not above it (laughs) for sure. Yeah. But she was fully planned to go full-on screaming. And I think Greg Wilhere was smart enough to know, like, I can't grab her. She will cause a scene. And we cannot, we cannot have that. So her bus 
does come and Greg threatens to follow her on the bus, but Claire knew that he couldn't do that. So he'd have to get all sorts of permission from Scientology. So she knew that he wouldn't follow her on the bus. So she gets on the bus and she's free. She knows there's no worries about her phone now. They, they know where exactly where she is. So she turns it on to call Mark and tells him she got on the bus. And he's so relieved because he thought they'd caught her and taken her back. So two days on the bus, she finally makes it to Kansas city. The whole rest of the trip was uneventful and she makes Did it. Did she eat? No, she's still on the bus. There's no food on the bus. I know. Oh, I thought maybe they had like peanuts or something. Oh, she might have had peanuts. We're going to go with that. She had some peanuts on the bus. <laughs> Pretzels. The guy sitting next to her, he had bought an extra bag of potato chips and he gave them to her. Or like um, beef jerky. He had some <laughs> beef jerky that he shared. That's what people buy on road trips, right? That's what my dad always yeah. bought. Slim on road gyms. Trips. Some Slim Jims. Yeah. So she had a Slim Jim and a bag of peanuts and she was good. I made all of that up, but it makes me feel better. She said that her thoughts on this trip, what really struck her was the absolute pure exhilaration of being free and then being able to be free with Mark and be reunited with him. So she gets to Kansas City and Mark is there waiting for her and she's so relieved to have made it and their reunion was so emotional and Mark tells her that he's staying with her dad so or his dad, I think, so... They stay with him and Claire starts to adjust and she gets a job at a local pizza restaurant and she absolutely loves it. She says it was really therapeutic for her. That humble, honest work was so much better than life at the top of a big religious cult. (laughs) (laughs) She said she had so much fear about leaving. Like, what would she do? Where would she go? How would she get a job? What would she put on a resume after being in a cult for 15 years? And now it was just this beautiful thing that she had spent so much time worrying about. You write escaped the hardest cult ever to get out of on your resume. Right? Yeah, That's exactly. Claire emails her mom to let her know that she's okay. She's sorry for whatever her mom's going to go through because of Claire. And within a week, she got an email back from her mom um, who said she'd been called in and given Claire's declare order, which meant she can't have any contact with her anymore. if She wants to stay in good, ta- in good standing with the church. Her mom said that she understood Claire's choice, but she was really upset that she'd have to disconnect and she wanted Claire to do whatever she had to do to get in good standing with the church. Oh, I know. The thing is, I know because the thing is, there really is no way to leave Scientology and stay in good standing. It's very hard. There is a procedure for Sea Org members who want to leave. It's called routing out. But really, the routing out process is just a way to get you to stay. Claire's told that if she wants to route out, she's going to have to do what they call the RPF, which is what I was talking about earlier when I said, this is where I think Shelly Miscavige might be here. <laughs> yeah. The RPF or the whole. The RPF is the Rehabilitation Project Force. The RPF is basically a labor camp for Scientologists who have violated expectations or policies. It can take a year or longer to complete. A year of heavy manual labor and forced reindoctrination. Yeah, nothing says freedom like a labor camp. I, uh, yeah, and it's awful. People that have done it claim that it's 30 hours on, three hours off. They put mattresses on the roof and they're wet and gross. And that's where they might be able to sleep for those three hours that they get. Ew. Could you imagine a year of that? No. 30 hours on of, of hard manual labor, 
sleep for three hours, get up and do it again for another 30 hours. On a wet mattress. I feel like you would die. Yeah. No. I I feel like when the air mattress deflates, I can't imagine. (sighs) (sighs) So by this point, Clara Mark had a lease on an apartment in Kansas City. She had her job at the pizza shop and another job lined up at an insurance agency. And now to keep her family, they're telling her she's got to do the RPF. The church was trying to use emotional blackmail and she just wasn't having it. So she said, no, thank you. And she was finally in control of her own life for the first time ever. And she lived happily ever after. Yeah, right? but it came, you know, at the cost of her family because Claire right. was declared a suppressive person almost immediately. Claire and Mark actually ended up trying to sue Scientology for things like, you know, human trafficking and violating their human rights and like forced imprisonment. And the FBI started investigating more of these claims as well as claims of forced child labor, like in the cadet org. Right. But the court... And I just don't understand this. The court ruled in that case that all of those were essentially practices that were protected by the First Amendment. Mm, I was just about to say that little, yeah, their religion. So, yep, yep. So, just <sighs> what you can do whatever you want because you're a religion. You don't have to pay taxes. Um, You can traffic humans. You can force them to work for 30 hours on, three hours off. You can force children to do hard manual labor. I'm talking like build a stone wall where these kids are passing stones to build this wall. I mean. Yeah. Like what century are we in? This is terrible. I know. So once that ruling came out, the FBI dropped its case because for whatever reason, the church is protected. Do we need to do another FBI PSA? I feel like mm. every episode we're like, government, if you're listening. <laughs> mm. Answer for your crimes. <laughs> like, I would like to know why you dropped this case. I would like to know, court, how, how, and I, I think a lot of it is they, Claire and Mark didn't have any proof. Right. That what they said had happened there is what really happened. They didn't have any proof, but it's like, Okay, why don't you go interview that guy and 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 that guy who are all there and they can all tell you the same story. And that is the story of Scientology under David Miscavige. There are so many more stories. Oh my goodness. But those were my three favorite stories. I'll probably come back to Scientology at some point because um, it's just riddled. Total creep. I, I am and totally that's creep. how you've ruined my night for the fifth night in a row. <laughs> well, um, but this does keep me up at night. Like I <laughs> like lay there and be like, the world is a really messed up place. Oh, it keeps me up at night too, but mostly because I've got my laptop and I'm <laughs> having <laughs> Yeah, you have an excuse. You're doing the research. <laughs> I'm just like ready for story time. With every episode, I want to lift up a charity that I believe just does really great work related to the topic of the episode. So last week, we talked about the Aftermath Foundation, which specifically helps people trying to get out of Scientology. But this week, I wanted to lift up a charity that works to help people just trying to get out of cults in general. So I researched several because I didn't know about any beforehand. Most of these Most of these foundations that I'm talking about, I've like heard about before and read about before. This one is new to me, but I researched it. 
I found it has a really high rating on GuideStar. It's one of the only 501c3 nonprofits that helps people get out of cults. And they say that 100% of their donations goes to their missions. And they are called the Families Against Cult Teachings, Inc. And they say no one ever joins a cult. They join a church, a nonprofit group trying to save the ocean, a self-help group, a yoga class. They're curious about practicing an Eastern religion or to learn transcendental meditation. Experts state there are more than 5,000 active cultic groups in the U.S. with over 6 million members. FACT is one of the few organizations in existence whose mission it is to expose these groups for what they truly are and help those afflicted by them. And these are the victim support services that they do. They help those trapped in destructive groups. They reconnect support with estranged family members. They work with um, victims of slave labor and sex trafficking, child abuse, and they help with victim recovery and reintegration support. So they're a very small charity. They bring in less than 200,000. So I looked them up on Charity Navigator. They were unable to rate them. I did attempt to vet them on GuideStar and Charity Navigator and both confirmed their 501c3 status. So that's what I know about them. So if you'd like to learn more about them or support that organization, you can find them at familiesagainstcultteachings.org. And that link will be in the show notes. So should we do our social media? Yes, sister, hit it. Okay, you can find us on all the things, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at CreepersPod, or you can email us at CreepersPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, case suggestions. If you'd just like to say hi, please, please, please review us on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. It will really, really help us grow our podcast. And we would love you forever and ever and ever. Only if it's positive. If it's not, keep it to yourself. I mean, yeah. I mean, if it's not, you can email us. Like, we'll take your feedback, but like, it's not going to help us grow our podcast. (laughs) We want to get better. We just don't want to be publicly shamed. (laughs) Yeah, that's always my goal. (laughs) All right. That's all for this episode. So we will see you next time. Don't be creepy.